0: Awesome. Well, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you are ushering your kids out and while others of you are finding your passage of Scripture, if you don't have a Bible, it's, it's going to be okay. We have it up on the screen for you. Um, but I hope you do have a Bible. Like Andy said, um, yeah, this may be news to some of you, I do, I, though I do, we haven't been trying to keep it a secret. Um, I will be departing... Uh, the party isn't the right word. I, I won't be here anymore. Um, but um, I'm uh, beginning a sabbatical de- beginning this week. Um, this I'll be uh, taking a sabbatical through August. Um, this has been in the works. This is not an immediate thing, even though it's maybe uh, sounding like it's all of a sudden just kind of popped up for you. Um, this has been in the works for quite some time. Uh, and uh, in fact, we're supposed to take it last year. And then we went to shelter in place two weeks before the beginning of my sabbatical was supposed to happen. And... Um, and so my year was quite different than I was expecting. I'm grateful to be able to have it back. I just want to say three things about it. One, um, I'm grateful that the elders in the church would allow me um, such a generous gift. Um, it is needed. Second, I am confident that the church will not just survive, but it will thrive under Andy's and the elders' leadership. Um, we, uh, our church government, is, runs best. Um, and I believe all church governments run best when you're not following a me, but a we and I believe that you will find that um, Andy and the elders leadership is, is so strong and is actually the strength of any leadership that is here is because of their presence. And third, last I just wanna say, I will miss worshiping with you. That's it, let's get to God's word. Ephesians chapter two, verses four is where we'll pick up and is our last installment. How many sermons have we done on, on 10 verses? I think this is going on like nine, nine of them, something like that. Um, and uh, so we've spent now quite a while, nearly a year, well, uh, full, a full school year in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians, just chapter, uh, just the first chapter and a half of Ephesians. Um, and so we're closing up. Ephesians we will be beginning new series for the summer, uh, led by Ben Weber and then by Andy uh, this summer. And so you guys get a break from Ephesians as we look and give you a different diet for the rest of the summer. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Hear God's word. Here's what it says. And it is such good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then this is where we'll focus this morning for by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This ends the reading of God's holy and and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. Man, it's good to be giving you, bringing the word of God to you this morning. Also, just want to say, um, hey... Welcome, you God's Farm people. Uh, I don't know who you are, but uh, I hear you're from Texas or somewhere uh, akin to Texas. Um, so we're glad to have this like, slew of people in the general, this area. So for, for, please say hi to our guests. All right, here we go. We've been looking at, um, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Last week we looked at grace. This week we look at our final topical series, looking at faith. There, were, um, there was three people standing in front of a van, a van of all things. Vans are not usually that interesting. A crowd of people was there to see what would happen. It was outside of the stadium in Jacksonville, Florida. It was just hours before the Florida-Georgia football game. Yes, the world's largest cocktail party had reached the fullness of its inebriated revelry. The three people included my grandmother, Martha Leffel. They were all three finalists for a statewide drawing with a chance to win a brand new conversion van. This is back when conversion vans were the cool thing. But not just any van, a Gator van. This was a van with fitted out and painted in orange and blue, fitted with the most comfortable interior again of orange and blue, TVs, refrigerators and a massive stereo system. But there was more. In the van was cash, tickets to Florida football games, and many other prizes. Each finalist was given a key, a single key, and they each were to take their turn. The finalist whose key turned in the ignition and was able to start the van would win the van as well as all other prizes that came with it. My grandmother, by chance, was chosen to go last. The first finalist walked up, entered the vehicle, breathed deeply, and then turned the key. Nothing. The second finalist now had their turn. They briskly walked up, sat in the seat, placed their key in the ignition, and then with a cringing face turned their head towards the crowd as if they were waiting for the van to explode, sought to turn the key. Once again, Nothing. At this, a roar ran up in the crowd. My grandmother put her hands on her head, shaking and smiling as she moved toward the van with happy bewilderment. She sat down in the seat, put the key in the ignition, turned to the crowd with a huge smile, and turned the key. There is a key that gives you many, many other good gifts, and I'm as great as a gator van would be. There is a key to life. That is so much better. There's a key which ushers into our hearts the things that we most desire and long for. A key that opens all the doors to every room and blessing and goodness and delight. By the way, just, an, just a little side note, my grandmother won five cars in her lifetime. <laughs> five. If you want to hear more about that story, you can come and find me later. In the Bible, in the Bible that key, though, is called Faith. Faith. The key that turns the Christian life is called faith. Saving faith is the passageway, the key that opens up the doors of blessings evermore. All the blessings that we can think of in the Christian life, pardon, forgiveness, acceptance, security, adoption, perseverance, glory, all are enjoyed through this key we call faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Just as we reflected and stared directly, like staring at the sun last week, we looked at grace, so we look and stare deeply into faith this week. We ask the question, what is faith? Faith, saving faith is defined and varied in many ways throughout the history of Christian life. Perhaps one of the most succinct and clear ones is from our own confession of faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And It answers in this way, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. That's pretty good. Others, other pastors define it in even shorter ways. One pastor I heard says this, faith is a positive, God-given response to the gospel. Another said this, faith is a God-given gift that allows you to take hold of God's having taken hold of you. Martin Luther simply said it this way, faith is living trust, a living trust in God's grace. And so I figured if so many other people wanted you to find faith and come up with their own definition, I would try my hand at it this week. And here's what I came up with. My definition was, I thought mine was rather great. It was very Trinitarian. My faith, faith is given to us by the Spirit's grace as a living instrument which clings to Jesus' grace alone so that we may enjoy all the benefits of the Father's grace. I thought that was quite nice. And then I crumpled it up and threw it in the corner because I don't necessarily think knowing definitions of faith are going to help you so much in your Christian life. I think we might need to simply meditate on it for a little bit. And so in my consternation of trying to come up with a clear definition of faith this week, I finally set it aside and decided I'd take the same approach I gave last week, which is I'm simply going to give you reflections on faith. We looked at reflections on grace last week. This week we look at a few reflections on faith. I don't remember, how many did we have last week? Was it six, seven? Seven? Listen, I'm, I'm running into the sabbatical on one wobbly wheel at this point. I don't remember what I said. So we are, we are a few reflections on faith to bring us into the station. Saving faith, five reflections this morning. First is this, saving faith is first a gift. It's a gift. Saving faith is a gift. What is the source of faith? Does faith find its genesis in you? Is the source of faith some untapped well, previously undiscovered that was already in you? What does Genesis 2 say? It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And where does that faith come from? What does it say in the last line? And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not of your own doing. It is not of your own doing. It is not of your own doing doing. Where does it come from? It is a gift from God. Faith is a God-enabled response to the gospel. Faith is a gift from God that becomes both present and active when the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 5 and 4, makes us alive. And with that new life, with that new life, when the Holy Spirit comes, and we have different words for this, new life, regeneration, new birth. These are the words that we use. With that new life, that new life comes embedded with faith. Think about getting a a computer. It comes hardwired with certain programs. Well, with the hardwired new heart and new life that the Holy Spirit works in you, that new life comes inherently with a faith that clings to Jesus, pre-programmed with faith. Unless God... And unless God, this is absolutely critical, unless God gives us faith, then we would never respond to any offer of salvation with faith. You see, if the Spirit does not rebirth you, if he does not make you alive and give you a new heart, then you have a heart that is, as is already described in Ephesians 2, that is dead, and dead hearts don't respond. This is why it says in John 6, verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Do you come to the Father by your own intuition, by your own ability? No, you come because he first acts and moves in you. There's something that God does first. He is the first mover in salvation. And understand that that first move is a definitive move. It is the key point in which from that move that God makes to make you alive and to give you that new heart, all other gifts and blessings flow from it, including the faith that clings to God. Our faith is impossible without God awakening us, and making us new and making us live. This is is a consternation to us because doesn't the Bible over and over and over again tell us that if we wanna be saved, we must have faith? It demands of us and commands of us that we have faith. And so it's difficult to wrap our heads around the idea that God would command us something that we don't have, that we can't produce in and of ourselves. But this reveals a consistent truth that is found in the scriptures. God is constantly demanding things of us that he must first give to us. In fact, Augustine understood this. In the great prayer of Augustine, he said this, Lord, command what you will and grant to me what you command. Command what you will, but if you're gonna command it, you're gonna have to give it to me first so that I can do your will. And so it is with faith. J.I. Packer A great 20th century writer said this in his book, Knowing God. He said, our faith, this idea of consternation regarding faith is from our perspective. He said, our faith, which from man's point of view is the means of salvation, is from God's view simply part of salvation and is as directly and completely a gift of God's to us as pardon and peace of which faith lays hold. So then if you believe in Jesus today, it is not because of anything good in yourself. It is not because you're smarter, sharper, more sensitive to the spirit, more open-minded or any such thing. You believe God because God has given you that as a gift. So I ask you, where did your faith come from? If you have it, it came from God. It came from God. Second thing to say about saving faith. Saving faith is in Christ. Understand that the object of your faith is what really matters. What you put your faith in. <laughs> I, I love Florida man stories, don't you? The Florida man has become a kind of symbolic of, uh, of people who do insane things. But it now refers to some crazy loon wearing jorts with a haircut resembling something akin to a mullet and a general disposition of somebody who's experienced far too many days of heat stroke. You you see, you actually saw pictures of what we might describe as Florida man this week when people were pumping gas into trash bags and loading them in the back of their truck. That sounds safe, right? Let's have a flammable fluid fluid in the back of our cars. This is a great idea. Well, one of the things that the authorities in the state of Florida have to experience every time there's a hurricane bearing down on the state is they they go into various communities seemingly entirely comprised of what we might call Florida men. I understand the Florida man can be female in persuasion. A Florida man can be young and old. It's simply now the name Florida man is simply symbolic of a, of a loony person. And they, and they have to go into these communities and they have to persuade, cajole, threaten, and warn people that the mobile home that they're living in probably won't stand up to the hurricane that is bearing down on them. And the, the Florida man will roll out with a cigarette in his mouth and his hands in his pants and will say, I think old Bessie, I am putting my faith in old Bessie withstanding the tornado coming at me. Well, old Bessie usually becomes flying shrapnel to everybody else around them. This object of their faith to keep them safe from the storm that is coming is faulty. And so is the objects of anything that we put our faith in besides Jesus. To make us right with god we don't look to our works to reconcile us that is a that is a rotting rotting floor if you trust yourself to reconcile yourself to god then you're making a grave grave error I Had the experience a couple of years ago of somebody who was applying for a job here at the church and like any person who applies for a job we ask for references and so I called the references, and all the references, you'd think if you're going to ask them to be a reference, they would say really positive things about you. It was not the case for this person. This person, they just trashed the guy. They said, Stay. He, I would not touch this person for a job with a 20-foot pole. These, app, these were the applicants' own references. We didn't hire that person. In other words, their resume... Their resume didn't work. And by the way, your resume before God is very similar. Your righteousness, or whatever it is that you have trusted in to make yourself right before God, is as helpful as a mobile home in a tornado. That's what your righteousness does. The object of faith, the object of our faith is so often our problem. But if you have the right object, if you have the right object... Oddly enough, it becomes completely flipped. If you have Christ, if Christ is the object of your faith and nothing else, then it is a totally different matter. In fact, he is such a right object and such an object of strength that even if you have a weak faith, even if you have a weak faith, he still saves. Because it is not the strength of your faith that determines salvation. It is the strength of the object upon which your faith rests. Here's Mr. A and Mr. B. They're going up ladders. Mr. A is confidently walking up a ladder that is absolutely too weak to hold his weight. Here's Mr. B. He's scared. He's trembling. With fear and trembling and filled with doubts, he he gingerly places his feet upon the rungs of the ladder. One man is climbing with great faith. One man is climbing with weak faith. What's going to happen? It's terrible, of course. Mr. A is going to, with great confidence, Step upon one of the rungs, and it's going to snap, and Mr. A will go tumbling down. Meanwhile, Mr. B, with all of his weakness and trepidation, he will rise up the strength of those rungs and reach the top. See, the strength of the faith does not determine salvation. It is the object upon which we put our faith. And therefore, this is good news for people like me, those with weak and fearful and faltering and failing faith who have put it in Christ Jesus. Abraham and Sarah, you know, the greatest, we have this great example in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It begins with Abraham. Know what Abraham did? He leaves his country and then he goes out and the first challenge he faces, what does he do? He lies. God says, I'm gonna give you a child. And he goes, you didn't give me one. I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. Abraham is the example of great faith. And what do we get in the life of Abraham? Story after story after story of a failing faith. The faith is, our faith is often in different degrees at various seasons. It can be weak, it can be so strong, maybe often in many ways assailed and weakened, but ultimately, ultimately, you're, you have salvation through faith because your faith is in Jesus and Jesus gives the victory. This is good news. And it's good news because the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God is not dependent on the strength of your faith of your faith. So I ask you is the, uh, is Christ the object of your faith? Is Christ the object of your faith? Not your works, not your righteousness, not your church going, not your kind disposition, not your wisdom. Christ is he the object of your faith. By the way, the object of your faith can't be faith. There's actually different answers one a, a classic answer a question that you you would ask in evangelism. I'm not sure we ask this anymore, but It was a classic question in what was called Evangelism Explosion. And here here is the question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask you why I should let you into heaven, what would be your answer? There's pretty typical responses to this. A common answer is, I have no earthly idea. A more common answer, it goes something like this. I've tried my best to be a good Christian or a good person. Both of these are clearly faulty. But here's the evangelical answer. And it too is faulty. Here's how it goes. If if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you would say, the evangelical answer is because I trust in Jesus. But who's the primary actor there? You still. Me, I, I, I. They have turned their faith into a meritorious work. The answer is Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is. Why should God let you into heaven? Because Jesus died for me. Because Jesus saved me. Because Jesus gave me his righteousness. Because Jesus made me alive. Because Jesus made me your child. Because Jesus clung to me when I did not have the strength to cling to him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Third reflection faith is alone. Faith is alone. To be more specific, as to add where we just were faith is in Christ alone. It is not Jesus and, it is not Jesus plus, it is faith in Jesus alone. The object of faith is Christ, and the question for us is this, is do you believe that Christ, as the one who saves you, do you believe he is enough? Because the way so many of us live, it shows that we don't. Our profession of faith is yes. Our functional faith is no. No. The nature of faith, saving faith, though, the nature of saving faith is that Christ saves, and he saves Entirely. Not he saves 90 percent or 95 percent or 99.9 percent. He saves entirely. He does it all. Saving faith looks to Christ for everything, even your obedience, and that means you put the full weight of your trust on Him. In Jesus, consider all that we get in Jesus. All that comes, we get pardon and forgiveness from sins. We understand this, right? If you spend much time in the church, you know this. Why do we Why do we look to Jesus? Because He took my sins. And he gave me forgiveness, and that is absolutely true. Right? It says it in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Who wrote those words? It's such good news who wrote those words. You know, actually, it's one writer in the New Testament quoting an Old Testament writer. The Old Testament writer is a guy named David. What was David known for? Being a murderer. And who's the guy quoting him? A dude named Paul, who's also known for being a murderer. These are the people who are writing your Bible. Oh, and Moses, who was also known as a murderer. Most of the people who wrote your Bibles have this, this in common. And yet they were given forgiveness and pardon and received no wrath. Why? Because Jesus took their sin and he takes yours. He took the blow that we should have gotten. This is what Jesus does. Takes our sin and therefore takes God's wrath. Kyle Carpenter, he was a United States Marine in Afghanistan. And they were in a firefight one particular day, and a grenade landed on a rooftop where he and another Marine were standing. And immediately, without seemingly a second, Kyle jumped on that grenade. Now ultimately his body armor protected him and saved his life, but it pretty much essentially blew his faith off. Blew his face off. For three years, he had surgery after surgery to recover. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Kyle Carpenter, what did he do? He took the hit. He took the hit. This is what Jesus did for you. He took the hit. He covers over the danger of God's wrath that was coming for us, the storm. But we don't just get pardoned. Oh, no. You have to get this. We saw this last week, but we come back to it again. In Jesus, we get the blessing of righteousness. God looks at us as if we had never sinned, but also as if we had always obeyed. We talked about it last week. The label I gave it was the great trade. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He got your sin, you got what? His righteousness. And this is critical, 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 critical to understand why he is sufficient. It is not that, as we said last week once again, that you are pardoned for your sins, he brings you back to zero, and you must live a righteous life to be accepted by God. No, he has done everything to give you his righteousness so that you are even now accepted as beautiful and precious in his sight. And this will make all the difference. This will make all the difference in your Christian life. It will make all the difference between a just a merely a profession of faith and moving towards a functional faith that is a life of security and joy no matter the circumstances. This is the case for so many that they have to discover this aspect of the gospel that he doesn't simply take my sin and now it's up to me to grin and bear it until I get to heaven, but he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. You know, this is true with one of Georgia's most famous Christians, a guy named John Wesley. He came to America as a missionary. He had full theological training. He was orthodox. He was part of a group of men who simply were just simply called the holy club. He, but he came in his righteousness, his own perfect righteousness and performance, he came to one of the worst places one can know, Georgia. Georgia. He came to Georgia, the godless, uncouth, unwashed colony of Georgia that can be displayed every Saturday in the fall at University of. He gets up every morning at four AM and he studies his Bible and he prays. He spends time with prisoner, is in the sixth he's sick. He does evangelistic work, preaching and teaching, but he leaves Georgia as a complete failure. As a complete failure. It's actually kind of funny how he was a failure. He tried to go after a woman and she rebuffed him and when she wouldn't marry him, he had her excommunicated from the church and the, ch- the rest of the community thought this was a bad idea and so he he gets kicked out of Georgia, which is hard to do. I've been trying for 9 years. But he goes back, and on the ship back to England, he's at the ship, and they're in in this incredible storm. They think the the ship is going to go down, and he sees a group of Moravian missionaries who are there on the ship, and they're praying, and he sees that they're singing, and they're joyous, and they said this. They said, we're so happy. He said, what's the deal with you guys? And they said, if the boat goes down, we go up. And he said, I don't have that kind of confidence. And he realized actually that there was something they had that he did not have. And he got back to England, he walked into a church, and he heard in that church someone read from Martin Luther's Galatians commentary in which what he found there was the good news that not only was he pardoned of his sin, but that Jesus had produced all the righteousness he needed. All of it. It doesn't stop there, though, does it? All the blessings... Remember we read, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks looking at all the blessings in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In Jesus, we get adoption. You're his son because of Jesus. In Jesus, we get sanctification and perseverance. We are chosen. We are made holy and blameless. We are redeemed. We are given an inheritance. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of these things come through Christ. See, he gives everything. Just like if you, my grandmother won the gator van, it came with all the other blessings that were embedded with it, and so it is when you get Jesus, you get all the other blessings that are embedded with him as well. Rock of Ages, the old hymn says this, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever sow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In Christ alone. Fourth Reflection. Faith is living. Saving faith is living. It's actually described by many theologians as vital, a living faith. The nature of the gift is not an inanimate object. That's important. See, as a living faith, things that live must continue. If it's dead, it inherently and in essence ceases to exist. By the very nature of faith, it will remain living. The gift of faith that the Spirit gives is not a cheap toy made in China. The very nature of this faith is it does not die. This is important. All questions about losing one's faith or walking away from the faith and questions about whether one can therefore lose your salvation are debates that are incited by those who do not understand the very nature and essence of faith itself. It's alive. It is not dead. If you have a faith... The faith that Jesus gives, the faith that is given to you by the Holy Spirit, it will never die inherently and by the very essence of it. Saving faith that its essence can never die. It may weaken, it may vacillate, but it does not die. And the proof of the pudding is in the sustaining aspect of that faith. And as a living faith, it means that it means it is not one time, a one time experience, as we often think of it, but as an ongoing experience ongoing, continuous, living, and active thing in your life. It is not as if saving faith accepts, receives, trusts in Jesus for our justification, and then poof, it evaporates. And we have to do the rest of our life out of our own labors. No, faith is there at the beginning, and faith is how you continue to live each and every day. If you want to be sanctified, if you want to change, if you want to see obedience to your life, you do so, and you pursue that by faith. By faith. And therefore, it involves so many other aspects of who you are. So that faith, we tend to think of it this way. I want to try to drive this in a little bit more. We tend to think of it as, as something that we do while we, when we walk an aisle and then we don't need it anymore. Almost like the kind of the recording in Mission Impossible, right? As if like you have faith and then it's going to self-destruct and the rest of your life is up to you. It's, faith is not like the umbilical cord that you need while you were in the, in the womb until you were born. But when we sever it, we, we, we don't ever sever it. We are always connected to God the Father through faith. Faith is a perpetual living attachment to Christ. It's alive, it's alive. And therefore, a living faith will involve all aspects of your being. Remember we looked, when we looked at uh, the idea of, in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, about being dead in sin, and we looked at what that affected and what that meant. That meant it affected all of your faculties. It affected your mind. You don't think correctly about the Bible and about God and about Jesus. It affected your emotions. You don't feel correctly about him. It affected your desires. You do not desire him. You want nothing to do with him. But on the reverse, when the spirit of God makes you alive and gives you this faith, it now affects and lives out in all aspects of your being as well. That means faith will involve your mind and your intellect. There is a content to the faith that we believe. There is something actually to believe. We we are apprehending within our mind that there was the Son of God who took on flesh and died for our sins and gave me his righteousness and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. There are actual, factual, historical things that we hold to. But it is not simply that, is it? Many people can believe the facts about this man, Jesus, and yet they live not trusting in him. And so faith is not mental, yes, but it's also emotional and even down to the very core of our trust, the trust that we have, that we lean in our whole life into who he is. It's a personal trust. It involves a desirability where you long to trust in Jesus. You long to live for him. It includes an awareness of the sweetness and the excellence of Christ. It includes a change of affection and disposition, inclination, and your will. That means you will actually want to obey him, which is why James says this, right? That if you have no works, he says that is a dead faith, a dead faith, and that is no saving faith at all. It's not that the obedience is what saves, but the obedience is the evidence that the faith that you claim to have is indeed a living faith. A saving faith. The very nature of this faith is a living thing. It moves, it acts, it works, it lives, it obeys. It obeys. But because it's a living thing, it also means it can grow. And that's the last reflection I want to give us this morning. Saving faith is growing. Saving faith is not a standard measure or unit of divine manufacture. It is not something that everyone gets one ounce of saving faith. It is more like an organic plant. If it is alive, then it will grow. Yes, it may have seasons in which it withers and seems to fail, but ultimately it will grow. You see, while in this life the faith in one man may look differently than the faith in another, ultimately, ultimately all faith, if it's a saving faith, Will grow in one particular thing and that is confidence and assurance the most famous definition the most clear definition in the bible of what faith is is this in hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 That says this now faith is the assurance 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 of things hoped for and being convinced of what we do not see now what are we hoping for in faith well many things right we talked about all those blessings but if I could sum it up simply this way, faith is a sure and certain knowledge of God's benevolence for us. In other words, see, he's for us. That's how King David puts it in Psalms 56, verse nine. He says this, this I know. I know is an assurance word. It's a word of confidence. I know this, one thing, that God is for me. That God is for me. Being able to say, come what, a, what may, even when sin in my life, and suffering present in my life, this is what I know beyond anything, above everything, that God is for me. And how do we know God is for us? How do we know? How can we be sure and certain, have a confidence that God is for us beyond anything we can see? Because I look at my life and I see what? I see a lot of sin. I see a lot of failings. I have seasons in my life where I look around and I go, okay, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship and a lot of difficult for me here. What would would give me a certain confidence in this moment, in this moment, when I cannot see, when I cannot see? There's a guy named T.F. Torrance who is a prolific 20th century English theologian. He tells of his service as a chaplain during World War II. He speaks of one particular occasion when he was in the heat of a battle one day, and he came across a young soldier who was dying, and he was near the point of death, and the soldier asked, as, as the chaplain bent down over him, he, the, the soldier said, is God really for me? Now that's a poignant question. Your guts are laying, down, are laying next to you, and you're facing death before you. That's suffering. The loss of all things, seemingly. And Torrance said, I had nothing but to speak to this man in his dying ear to look at him and say this, that you can know that God is for you because he sent Jesus. God, when you cannot see him, he does have a face because his face became real and present in the face of Jesus. And he poured out his love for us as our savior. Torrance points towards what? In suffering and sin, what do we need to point towards? Christ. How do you know, how do you know that God is for you? Jesus, because of Jesus. The manifest display that God is for us is that Jesus would come and die for us. I appreciate this story because it acknowledges the cruelty of life. There's pain and death, injustice, suffering and war, and these things exist and they hurt us and they attack our our faith, they tear at us, and yet we have one who comes alongside of us and he has a face and he says, I'm a man of sorrows. And I am for you. See, the weight, the weight room of growing confidence is having to face your sin and having to face your suffering. That is the weight room of growing confidence. And to find over and over and over again that even in your seasons of your worst sins and the season of your worst sufferings, he is there. He is there. You see, faith, by its very nature, if you want to grow in faith and grow in confidence is you don't focus on the faith itself faith is inherently not self-focused it is outward focused on another object and the deepening of faith and the increasing of faith comes not by looking at your circumstances or looking at your life or looking at even the strength of your faith but saying i i have weak faith so what must i do i must look to jesus Faith fixes our eyes on Christ and rests in him. And one of her great letters, another Georgian, Flannery O'Connor wrote this, that her faith rises and falls like the tides of an invisible sea. That is my faith. Our faith is indeed fickle and wavering, but God's love is what? It is constant and it is steadfast. So with that growing confidence comes moments and times of what we might call increasing rest. But well, maybe better than simply saying increasing rest. You might say it's of seasons of increasing enjoyment. The Western Confession of Faith, or the Shorter Catechism, I read it earlier as the definition. It says that faith receives and rests upon the work of Jesus. But I think it's important for us to know, what does that word rest mean in the Bible? It's a peaceable enjoyment is what it means. Where's the first place we see the, first, the word rest in the Bible? God created all things, and then on the seventh day, he he rested. But does that mean God was exhausted and he needed to take a nap? No. Here's, I think, the picture far more of what that means. That means it was far more like one of those wonderful Saturdays that maybe you've experienced recently, where the sun is shining and you labor throughout the day. You mow the grass, you plant the new flowers, you put out the mulch, and at the end of the day, you sit outside with a good drink in your hand and steak grilling on the grill. And you're showered and you are clean and you sit outside and you soak up the sounds of your children playing in the yard and the beauty of your flower beds and the cleanliness of your deck and you simply, what? You rest. But it doesn't mean you took a nap. It means you soak in with enjoyment. You soak in enjoyment, the fact that all the work is done and yet in this case, the rest of faith is we soak in in the enjoyment of what? His work is done. On your behalf. Because on the cross he said what? It is finished. It is finished. So the rest of faith, the rest of faith is an ever increasing enjoyment of the finished work of Jesus for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have never received faith, received you by faith. I pray that there would be something tantalizingly beautiful that would begin to rise in their heart right now. And Lord, I I, I pray very specifically and directly that the spirit of the living God would come in and make alive. Make alive. That where there are dead hearts in this place, that the spirit would invade. The spirit would invade and make alive and give us this this mysterious thing called faith, this instrument that would allow us to cling to you. Lord, I think of so many in this room who are like me, in which their response to suffering and difficulty and their own sin this week was to put their hands on their head, was to kick the dirt, was to throw rocks, was to get angry. Oh, God, I pray that you'd help us to rest in you once again. May we repent of all of our clinging to our own righteousness Would we lay aside our deadly doing and instead cling to the work of Jesus and the work of Jesus alone. Oh, would you give us joy in that? Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.